that's a lot of M's, I know, but uh, I think we might have some fun with it. So the radiant heart relies on a wise relationship with the mind. And we've been working with cultivating this field of radiance for the last few days. Our investigation is beginning to happen with um, looking at the body, the sensations, the breath, and um, Vedana, our feelings. And tonight I'd like to touch just a little bit and maybe continue later in the week on just the movements of mind. So the first thing that happens when we sit down is um, our mind starts doing what it does. It's pretty impermanent. It's busy. It has no shame at all. It just, it's just persistently busy all the time. And, um, and what we immediately get in touch with when we get still is that characteristic, one of the three characteristics of our existence, the truth of impermanence, the truth that change is all, is, is all there is in our, you know, in terms of, of uh, our experiences. The Buddha taught that the mind, the significance was of the mind was as in the same category as our ears, our noses, our tongues, our skin, our eyes. It's a sense organ. The mind, our thoughts, our sense organs were touched by what happens there. And it happens to be one of the organs we place a higher value on, that our minds as opposed to maybe our hearing or even some of our seeing. But it's an important uh, organ of, um, or a gateway to knowing. In every aspect of our experience, in every aspect of our experience, there is movement of mind. There is the mind object, and simultaneously there is the knowing of the object. Simultaneously, there is the thing that we're noticing, and then an awareness that we're noticing it happens simultaneously. So I have a little demo to, to kind of illustrate that. My friends in the kitchen were kind enough to give me a little oil, and then I added some water to it. So can you see this rather eloquent separation here? So we could say that the oil are the objects of mind, the things, the busy mind, the monkey mind that's happening when we sit down. And then the water is that which is aware of the objects of mind. It's just the awareness. It happens simultaneously. So these are, uh, this is some of the brilliance of the Buddha's teachings. He taught us to make these fine discernments 
and the investigation of our mind. He was brilliant that way. So we have objects of mind, a lot of them, billions, trillions of them in any one sitting. And then there's this awareness of mind. And what do you imagine this is? Dukkha. <laughs> dukkha, 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 dukkha. <laughs> it is not something you really want, but something that kind of get, we get stuck to. And it's dukkha in a way because there is not the discernment that there is a distinguishing that we can do between observing the objects of mind versus becoming one with them. But when we settle just for a little bit, we can begin to see the separation that can occur. And the ability to see clearly is being able to discern through our mindfulness practice that there's a, there's a subtle distinction here that I can bear witness to. I can notice that these are activities of mine instead of being all tied up in it. So it's our mindfulness practice. You can start to see the separation. This is good separation, by the way. <laughs> but that's what happens when we get ourselves still. So we, um, we, are, we get attached and we get snagged. I love what Catherine said about being snagged. We get snagged. And we over-identify with the objects of mind. We think that's all there is. It can feel very all-consuming. You know what that's like. When, 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 it, when it's, it, it becomes everything. I remember being in therapy. This is years ago. I was a big rager when I was younger. Okay, well, it wasn't that long ago. That's <laughs> and, uh, I even wrote a book about it, so I'm an expert, if anybody wants to know. But when I was uh, in the throes of the righteousness of rage, it was an experience of being Ziploc, airtight, uh, bubble-wrapped, absolute, complete, no room for air. I mean, it was a perfection of it that I had mastered over time. I had a PhD in raging. We all get, get a PhD in something. But um, the, the absorption that's felt and the intensity and the identity of it can be, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong. I just felt right and it was um, all these other people that just couldn't quite get it together and you know sometimes I played the race card and sometimes I mean I had a few cards you know that I could pull out of the deck and say no it's this and let me give you some proof and I was I was really good at justifying my case so I went into to therapy and I worked with this therapist a long time, and she was very patient with me. Uh, she would have had to be. I don't even know why I kept going. But I, kept, I, I, I went, and I was telling her about these 
suits. I used to call all these white men in these corporations that I worked in that were, you know, didn't see me enough, didn't appreciate me enough. You know, the list was long. I called them the suits. And she was very patient with me. And I, I, I feel like, and this is that, and here's my proof, you know, big boxes. And she asked me one day, she said, why did you send her to work, to the job? I said, who? Who? Who are you talking about? She said, why did you send the little wounded one to the job? I said, who? Who's wounded here? Let's be clear, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to pay you and have a fight. <laughs> you know, let's get some things clear. So she, and so she played with me a little bit on this. She said, so the little one's getting in the car with these big shoes on, and I'm saying she's not telling me I got big feet, is she? She's, she's driving the car over the bridge in San Francisco, trying to find a parking place. Can't see over the steering wheel, because she's too young. She doesn't have a driver's license, but she's in the car, probably causing a lot of accidents. And then you send her to the meeting with a suit just too, too big and expect her to come out intact. Why do you send her to the job? And it never occurred to me that her and me were kind of slightly different choices. It's like, oh. She said, you ought to leave her at home, tuck her into bed, tell her you'll be back after five, and send the wise woman. And that was a big moment for me of recognizing that I might have some choices other than my righteousness. This is the airtight solidifying that we can do, the selfing that can happen from righteousness, or fill in the blank. So um, suffering is when we are trying to do something on top of the something that's already happening. So we add another layer. We identify with the second arrow. So let's see how we're doing here. Coming along. Five minutes, five minutes sit. (laughs) So earlier today, Catherine provided a beautiful instruction on the Vedana of uh, us taking a look at our feeling tone, the second foundation of mindfulness. And it's so beautiful and simple. It, it invites us to see what's happening. Um, is, is, is what's happening pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And what we begin to see in the practice over time, more and more, another discernment is that in this activity of mind, that when things are really pleasant, we tend to want to hold on tight to them. And this can move us into a zone of greed. Or if the feelings are unpleasant, we tend to want to annihilate them, stomp them out, make them go away, beat ourselves up because they even appeared. And if they're neutral, we don't tend to notice or give much attention to them. You see, our attention prefers extreme. 
Somebody asked me, well, couldn't you have just written a book about anger? No, it was rage. <laughs> so we like extremes in our mind. The funny thing about the neutral is that it's usually the territory of normal things we just kind of assume. It's, it's no big deal. It's, it's right. We don't question it very much. Here's a funny way to consider this. My doctor asked if any member of my family suffered from insanity. I replied, no, we all seem to enjoy it. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's, that's delusion. Delusion is when I'm going up and down the stairs here, and there's this part of my mind that's saying, why are people, why are people walking on the wrong side of the stairway? I'm in England. <laughs> you know, it's when I assume, you know, you know, when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is in the south from the uh, Berkeley area of the Bay Area. Uh, if anybody knows California, they know it's different from any other place in the United States. It took me a long time before I can get that Charlotte was not wrong. It was just different. So these are, that's, that's the kind of territory of delusion where it's just so, of course, this is how it is. I don't have to look at that. Give me something else to look at. Give me some other extreme to pay attention to. But the most common delusion that we have is that we can control the mind, that we can control the movement of mind. So here's what Donna Flaus has to say about this. She says, there is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, patience becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to you in new eyes. And the Buddha says that as long as there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. So the very view that uh, we can hold on to something or hate something to make it actually go away isn't a delusional notion. So we all have these visitors when we sit down on the cushion. We all are dealing with some uh, frequent flyer uh, mind objects. Some of them come more often than not. So I invite you to reflect just a moment on what would, would you say is the quality of the frequent objects of mind 
that, that come for you? Is it um, objects of greed? You know, stories that have a, a greediness to it? Is, are they objects of aversion? Things we're just trying to get right and get rid of? Or do they tend to be kind of vague and maybe a little confusion or there could be maybe a little bit of doubt or a sense of, of just flood and flurry. And so this inquiry is about understanding these objects of mine and subtly shifting our attention to be able to look at them for what they are. And that's what our mindfulness practice helps us with. Hafez says that my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. And the Buddha said that the worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded mind. So when we're not watching this, it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means we're not watching it. Again, in every aspect of our experience, there is a movement of mind the things that come and go, all our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, everything. And then there is the knowing that that's happening. A Rinpoche I heard not too long ago says, awareness is always present. We can't function without it. But we can function without recognizing it. So there's always awareness but there's not always awareness of awareness. That's a mindfulness offering. So we begin by establishing mindfulness. When we look at, so how does this kind of come to us in our practice? How does this become a way of kind of uh, an offering to what we're, we're trying to do? So we get ourselves still, we're here, we get on the cushion. We follow the structure, we walk, we sit. We establish good intention. We try these practices on and see how they work. Barbara Kingslover says, be still and the world is bound to turn herself inside out to entertain you. <laughs> we can't be entertained if we're caught in it. But if we're watching it, it can almost be like a cartoon, at least mine can be sometimes, where it's like, oh my goodness, that's amazing, or holy. <laughs> when we stop and take our seat and settle our mind, we begin to see more clearly. Let's see how we're doing. Yeah, hmm. kind of nice. There's promise there. The practice does bear fruit over time. Um, sometimes the bearing of the fruit of practice is in retrospect. 
So my partner's father died a couple of years ago, and I was, uh, and after that time, her mother came and lived with us. I guess it's been about three years now. And um, so there was a couple of deaths there. Her father died, and then we had a death of somebody new being in a relationship in the house. <laughs> but um, what I noticed when he died, and he was very dear to me, was that uh, I wasn't so gripped by the death, and I was surprised by that. And I could see how my practice was supporting me with this transition. You know, it, 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 was, it, it was just interesting to notice that I could actually be with the loss without the stickiness. And with my mother just passing last month, it, it was even, it, it was, it, there was a lightness about the experience. I wasn't so gooed in. There wasn't a lot of snarliness to um, her exit. I could hold it with a bit more awareness and kindness. And in some ways, it was, it was like my relationship to death has been changing because my life is, is uh, up, up close to the fact that this one breath, you know, we're always um, dealing with that on some level. So the benefits to the practice I want to walk through a little bit. Um, what we're doing in the mindfulness practice, and some of you have been practicing longer than other times, and you probably can touch right into this. But through the practice, we're cultivating a caring, steady, and watchful awareness. We're cultivating it. It's a practice of cultivation of a caring, steady, and watchful awareness. We move from mindfulness of the object or the activity of mind to a more spacious, broader, kind of panoramic, more choiceless awareness. So we're not all in this. We're actually backing up a bit and can see a bit more clearly. We become, over time, less and less snagged because we are able to see this for what it is, a movement of mind. And we don't have to be so reactive to it. Sometimes I give my mind activity, especially the, the frequent flyer ones that come regularly, I give them a name and a place. And I'm not all, I, I try not to be too shocked when they show up because they, they really do have a, a credit card now that they use, and they're getting points for, for their frequency. <laughs> we begin in our practice, and, and, and this, is, this is some of the fruit, we begin this, to actually notice, if we're watching, that, these, that, that all of this movement of mind, there's a place where it starts, there's a middle part of it, it peaks, and then there's, there's a time when it's not there. So the beautiful thing about this practice is we make the shift from seeing the object and looking for the object, being snagged by the object, all the way to a place of seeing how it ends and noticing when it's no longer there. 
and the relief that gives us to see the cessation of it. And then we move further into a place where we see the um, objects of mind as impermanent, as their true nature. We don't even have to be with the object and follow it. We, we see it as something that comes and goes. It's impermanent. It can entertain us. So over time, the awareness of impermanence becomes the central focus in our practice. It's no longer the objects of awareness. That's what, that's what some of the fruits of this practice can make possible. And um, I love what Joseph Goldstein has to say about this. He says um, that being with our practice in this way, um, being with mind, being with the mind in this ways, in this way, strengthens the momentum of mindfulness through mindfulness itself. So we're strengthening through our practice the momentum of mindfulness. There's an accumulative, there's an investment we're making in this practice through mindfulness itself. And herein lies the freedom we begin to trust from our direct experience. So we sit and we see for ourselves. We witness, we discern, and wisdom is growing through this process. What's useful to understand is that awareness of anger is not angry. Awareness of fear is not frightened. The awareness is, 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 is witnessing what's happening. It's not it. So some of the things we can do that's very simple um, is to um, be include in your practice making this subtle discernment. What's happening and how am I relating to it? How am I responding to it? How am I responding to what's happening? Am I merged? Am I shaking it up? Can I discern that there's a subtle difference between um, these two elements that I don't have to, uh, that I can actually relax and the awareness that I have of this distinction? So witness what's arising while it's arising. And more importantly, notice when it's not there. Notice when the object has faded away. Be present when it's there. Infuse your investigation with warmth, with the radiance, with, with heart, with kindness as you practice. Let your atmosphere and mind mood be one of uh, kindness and warmth. Check your mood out before you start your investigation to see what might be feeding this sense of uh, dukkha, 
where we get snagged. And we might want to keep things a little light, you know, while we're doing this because, you know, if we are over-efforting, we tire out and we just, you know, it's just hard to see anything when we, when we over-effort and we're beating ourselves up. I recall this story of uh, a student of Soyam Rinpoche who said to him, the student said, I want to be liberated, but I don't, I don't follow the breath. I don't sit well. I just don't do anything well. And Rinpoche asked, well, what did you do in your previous life before you came into the monastery? And he said, I was a thief. And Rinpoche said, great, then steal your thoughts and place them on the altar of presence. Steal your thoughts and place them on the altar of presence. So what objects or obstacles that tend to, to occupy your mind can be placed on the altar of presence where obstacles become our practice, the practice of being kind towards what's there. Shizuki Roshi says, what we're doing is too important to take seriously. So keep it light. (laughs) And don't be discouraged. Here's something that can keep you encouraged. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably the family dog. (laughs) So keeping it light is, um, is good medicine. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures and success. When loss rips off the door of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, patience becomes simply bearing the truth and the choice to let go of your known way of being. The whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.